0: head to airbnb.com slash host.
1: When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, <laughs> did you hear about that? I didn't find the one, I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on one hand, On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled.
0: I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the
2: Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders,
0: and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers, here to start
2: conversations Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today, my guest is two-time Olympic gold medalist and FIFA World Cup champion, Abby Wambach. After her record-breaking career as a soccer phenom, she now spends her time as an activist for equality and inclusion. On top of this noble pursuit, she's also the author of a New York Times bestseller, Wolfpack. She's recently published an adaptation of Wolfpack for The Next Generation, urging young people to break old rules and create their own path. I wish I had had this book to read when I was a teen. In today's episode, Abby and I talk about what it means to lead, what role soccer plays in her family dynamic, and the reason why she'd like to be forgotten. Let's get to my conversation with Abby Wambach.
1: Hi! How's it going? Oh my god, I'm so so excited to talk to you. Same. Are you kidding me? We are such lovers of you and everything that you're doing. So your book,
2: which I loved so much, Abby, I really, I really loved it, especially as a mother of teenagers. And I love this idea that the, the seed that you plant, well, many of them, but for me, I just thought, God, I wish someone had told me this stuff when I was 14. Like I wish I wish the possibilities of who I was allowed to be were presented to me at 14. Mm. And I wondered how, how much of your whole trajectory has led to you un- uncovering and sort of creating this philosophy. Cause I know you had,
1: a- <laughs> that's <laughs> an amazing question. And the first time somebody's put it all c- kind of together in the correct way that I have it organized in my head, the whole concept of this kind of, started trickling into my life when Glennon and I first got together and she started pointing out these weird things that I do, like ways in which I operate that she wasn't ever privy to or didn't understand.
2: Such as?
1: So for instance, like when our girls were on soccer teams, they were on rec teams. When I first got into the family, they're on travel soccer teams now, thank God.
2: That was an ultimatum right there. Yeah.
1: You know, like just talking to them about their voice and talking to them about stepping into situations and, you know, requiring respect from the boys or from even the coach. It's like, you know, kids don't have, so we teach them, kids don't have as much access to power as I believe that kids or human beings should have. Right and having been inside the women's national team environment for so many years where you've got these 23 badass women all the time sometimes you have a camp of 28 that we have not been operating under the same rules as many women in the world and and when we and I was able to have that environment every day when you step outside of it and you retire from it you realize Whoa, like there is so much power inside an environment where women are redefining the rules for not just themselves, but the people who will come behind them, right? So early on in our marriage, Glennon just kept pointing these things out, like the way in which I can handle intense pressure and what that like is rooted in. So some of the leadership things that the ways in which my brain thinks in long-term success minds, right? So a lot of times when people are confronted with a hard situation where let's just for instance, talk about like leading from the bench, everybody's gonna get benched in their life no matter who you are, right? So your benching might be a demotion, your benching might be a firing, your benching might not like literally be making that starting lineup like like I did. We all have a choice, right? And I don't think that people understand that we have a choice based on what we see in the media, based on what we see in reality TV, like we see the the glorified versions of humanity, which is just not true. Right. And also what isn't taught is that you're allowed to be disappointed and also respond well, mm. <laughs> you know, like that's one thing that I think that in the end of my career, that's the, the biggest lesson that I ever learned was getting benched and understanding that I still had a choice here. So often, both things can be true. I can be so heartbroken about this situation not going in the way that I wanted it to, and also be a good teammate. And everything that I had yet to learn about true leadership was actually sitting right there on that bench. I wouldn't be talking to you today, Gwena, had it not been for the way that I responded in the face of that adversity. And this isn't like you know the inspirational like athlete who suffered and got through it this is like the real this is real stuff that people are going to struggle with whatever happens in their lives and we as human beings we can challenge ourselves to live up to the best versions of who we are right but i look look back on my career and truly i've scored so many goals in my life that i'm proud of i've won championships but i am more proud of the way that I responded to that benching, because Gwyneth, what I did was I solidified this trust in those women on that team. And now in my retirement, when things go wrong in their lives, who do they call? They call me. When when cancer happens, when tumors happen, when losing babies happen, when affairs happen, they're going to call the person that they know that they can trust with the most in, intense and private information, right? And I think that that is possible. Mm -hmm. I'm a living, breathing person that in the the face of the worst embarrassment benching of my life, I responded well. My team ended up winning and that's awesome. But the most important thing to me is the way that it made my self-esteem feel about the character that is inside of me and that I continue to try to operate through.
2: I think it's important to note for context, you know, that you're talking about a period of time where you're 35 years old now. So you were not a kid playing on the national team. Like you're 35 is considered. I was old. I was old player. (laughs) You went, you were still the number one scorer in the history of the whole entire sport, men and women included at that time. And the coach benched you. So My question to you when I read that and I read how you responded was how, like what, where did that come from within you to not, to, to realize you had a choice in that moment, to not be embittered, to not be quiet or small or retracted. Like how were you able to achieve that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a process. So I was back in my hotel room after having just heard the news from the coaches and i literally played out both scenarios <laughs> I had a choice I had two different roads I could go down and I played them out to the end and mm-hmm. I decided because a lot of some some of what our jealousy or our response to our life happens because it's just knee-jerk reaction right it's it's not a proactive thought it's just a response right. and
2: it's I think like a lot alien brain right just- yeah
1: exactly and and that response as an athlete, I worked on subduing that initial response and making a collective trying to be unemotional decision in the end. And so I had both roads. (laughs) I, I went down both of these roads. I could just sit on the bench and be a little brat and pout and just stay quiet. And then I thought about how that would feel to the rest of those players on the field right? Like what would that would look like, what that would feel like to be a starter. And the good news is for me, I had at this point in my career yet to win a women's world cup. Mm -hmm. And that was the literally, I think the only thing that I had yet to achieve as a collective team sport player in my career. So I was like, how, how can I win this? And also still feel like I was a contributing member because a lot of times What happens is is bench players or people who don't get that starting job feel like that they didn't have as much to do with that win. So I wanted to create a plan of attack for myself that would give me, in the end, that feeling like, hey, I actually mattered. My my role made a difference in some way. And that though it was hard, I figured out a way to do that. And so that night, I promised myself that I was going to be a good teammate. And even though it was going to be hard, even though I was going to have to like just at times fake it until I made it. And that's true. And then the other thing that I did was I promised myself I was going to still own the leadership and the captainship that I had accepted years before. And what that meant was I had to actually walk the walk (laughs) for the years beforehand. I was telling all of those bench players that they mattered. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had to like tell myself, okay, I matter. Why do I matter? What can I do? So it was my job on the bench. I was actually, I decided I was going to become the best bench player in the world. I'm competitive Gwyneth, and that's just part <laughs> of who I am. So whatever, judge me. I don't care. Uh, I was actually so good at it that our coaching staff actually moved me to the furthest part of the bench away from them. Cause I was so loud and I was so cheery for my teammates. And then something actually pivotal happened during that time on the bench because you get to develop those relationships with those bench players. Every every woman that goes on the field, our our hope is that they're going to actually positively affect and change that game. So we were in a game against uh, Germany in the semifinals, and Kelly O'Hara was about to go in the game, and I was like, Kelly, just like go in and score a goal, and. For all intents and purposes, she had no business scoring goals. She's not not like a goal scorer on our team. She played defender at times, but she was going to go up top and we were going to try to get that second goal to give us a little bit of a, a lead against Germany. And lo and behold, she went in there and scored a freaking goal. And I believe that belief is contagious, right? And so is the opposite, right? Like not believing you can do something is also contagious. And in the end, it worked out, but you have to, when, when presented this situation in life, you have to make a decision on, and if you don't know how to respond, what would your best self do? Right. In hindsight, like, what would you want to say about yourself in hindsight? So that's kind of how I processed through it. It wasn't easy either. Like every night I had to go back into my room and reset and remind myself what I was doing, why I was doing it. I texted three players every day. That was my goal. Like that was my attainable, achievable goal that I could do to contribute to those starters and give them confidence from what I saw during practices before the games. And it worked out. So then I got to be able to write a, a book about it and call myself a New York Times
2: bestseller. <laughs> see, everything happens for a reason. Totally, totally. You know, this, I know your Barnard speech, which was so great, which I just watched recently and because I knew I was going to see you. It seemed like that was, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it seemed like in preparation for that was sort of where the idea landed for you around the wolf pack. And I thought it was so profound because we're taught as girls, or I certainly was in my generation, like that collaboration with women can be tricky, that women are competitive that there's not enough space for everybody. And this is something that I really un, unpacked and, un, and, and destroyed all of those kinds of, you know, early societal ideas that I had had. But it's such a beautiful articulation of, I realized when I heard that and when I read the book, like what I have, which is I have created this for myself, obviously in a different way, I'm not on a team, but in my personal life with my women friends and at work as well, How did you start to, I guess, I guess in a team structure, it also helps foster that kind of collaboration, but how do you let go of the ego enough to really rely on that pack around you and, Mm. and really be able to lift each other up in that way? How did, and how did it dawn on you that you were doing that?
1: Well, two things were happening at the exact same time, which was kind of interesting. So I had just seen this TED Talk on the Yellowstone National Park, and this is how the idea of Wolfpack kind of came to me. And at the same time, Glennon is like pointing out all of these weird things that I do that end up becoming all of these rules. And, you know, this this scientists, they decided that in 1995, Yellowstone National Park had the rivers literally stopped running and they realized the deer were overpopulated and they were eating all the vegetation, which meant that the, the riverbanks of the, these rivers were, were eroding and not, not as strong enough to hold some of the water. So they thought, okay, let's put these wolves back into this ecosystem and see what happens. And when I watched this video, I like ran right over to Glenn and I was like, watch this. This is incredible. And she just turns to me, she goes, we are the wolves. And I was like, yes, that's exactly right. And so I'm also obsessed with flipping the fairy tales that we're all taught as little girls of what it means to be a girl, right? And what it means to be a woman in this world. Like, So connecting the dots from Little Red Riding Hood to, to this wolf pack mentality was fairly quick. It just happened. And, and to create the the rule of championing each other was one of the hardest rules for me to actually get to the bottom of, to get to the truthiest truth of it all, because we are taught one thing, and then I had to go through a process of figuring out how our women's national team embraces com- competition and competitiveness. And that was really hard because, you know, as an athlete, it is just by nature. You are always being evaluated and you are always trying out for that starting lineup. Like that every single practice, people are like, Oh, you're on the national team for so many years. I was like, yeah, but you don't understand. Like I was trying out every day. (laughs) Like it's, it's an amazing feat. What athletes are doing. It's like, you know, it's the same thing with you, Gwyneth. Like when you are on stage or when you're, you know, on, on set, like every time you are trying to become your best but what I figured out is women are inherently competing against each other because that's how the system has been set up, right? So this table of 10, this table with 10 seats, seats around it has historically only been giving women two of those seats. So I understand why women have been, because it's just the way that the system is set up, right? Women look at each other and go, oh, we're fighting for these two seats. So we have to compete against each other. Like, I'm here to remind everybody that there are 10 effing seats at that table, okay? So, like, let's get at least five of those, right? Like, fine. What is okay is to know this, right? What is not okay is to keep perpetuating this this situation because that's just the way things have been, right? So, this is why I wrote this into this book because I personally believe that it is possible to literally turn it on its head and and learn how to champion each other. You're a women's national team as teammates, we were genuinely happy when the other succeeded because we weren't afraid of challenging ourselves or leveling up ourselves. A lot of times when you see somebody in a seat or in a position that you want to be, that's just straight jealousy and fear, right? When you're like going to dog another woman and like put down another woman for being somewhere where you want to be that's just jealousy and fear and our women's national team we just never operated that way we were like okay alex morgan scored a goal i'm like that was my opportunity to turn up my own volume because i have a healthy ego i don't think ego is bad right it's bad when you don't have true control over it it's bad when it starts making decisions that are outside of your your goodness and and who you want to be I think that women deserve to be ambitious. Women deserve to be around those tables and women deserve the opportunity to level up but we just haven't really known that that was an option truly. So for me this is like so pivotal for all women to to learn let's not fight against each other.
2: Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners.
0: head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back
2: to the conversation. It's like a relic of the patriarchy, no, to get us all fighting with each other and being in competition with each other. And then they just take the ball. and Totally. And and that's what they want, right? Like in terms
1: of designing a, a, a system that keeps those in power in power they've done a good job right and so like like Ava Ava DuVernay said and I'm going to demolish this quote (laughs) she's like y'all are trying to break through glass ceiling of a house that like men built she's like I'm just going to be over here building my own house and that is what this book is that is what this philosophy is is rebuilding and 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 like Glennon would say like let's burn down all the structures and institutions that don't give us the same footing, that don't give us the same opportunity and rebuild new, rebuild beautiful. And that is, that's kind of essentially my goal here.
2: And I think you're, you do it the way that you articulate these new rules and lay out the possibilities that are, that young people, like that they, they could relate to themselves in a completely different way, right? They could, they could follow rules like this, like which are essentially a huge dismantling of all the rules that we, you know, grew up with. And so what was in your youth, what was the most in that vein of rules? Like what was the most stinging untruth that you were taught about yourself?
1: Well, it's funny because I think that I've been always like just defying rules. This is like in my nature. My mom could not stand this part of my personality, but it's the very thing that has led me down the roads of success that I found. I would say this whole concept of femininity, like the rule in which I was supposed to adhere to the way that I was going to dress and walk. And I don't know, the way that I, I moved through my life was never in line with the way in which in general girls or young women move right through their through their worlds. I remember having friends and I went to an all girls Catholic high school and I loved that so much because there was no competition with boys and we had uniforms though I hated them at the time. I like wish I could go back to having a uniform every day. And I think that feeling that pressure of, of knowing internally deep down that I didn't want to dress like, like all the other girls were dressing. I didn't feel like myself. Right. So any kind of sports awards that I was getting in high school or in college, like, or even like getting into a bridesmaids dress at some of my in-laws, like these are moments that I cringe at right now <laughs> Because I was just so, I was just like acting the part, right? I was like acting the part, doing what my mom wanted. And then the lights kind of turned on when I just stopped living my life to please my mother. And I started living my life to please myself. And guess what? I, I, I strained my relationship with my mom. That
2: is true. Was she disappointed? Yeah. I think she was,
1: I think she was more scared. Now, now that I have children and, you know, our 17 year old son, Chase, he came out to us a year ago and having gone through this coming out process with him, it healed so much of my childhood trauma and my coming out story with my family, because my mom had a problem with it. She's a through and through Catholic You know, I was like the most famous person in my family. And it's like all about the look of our family, not really about like what's going on in the functioning of it. So yeah, I think.
2: Yeah,
1: exactly. So I definitely feel like I disappointed my mom and her idea of what our family was supposed to look like and act like and whatever behave like. But knowing now how I feel about our children and how I feel that my mom had fear for me and she and i thought she was afraid of me mm. and those are very different things and so there's some healing that's taken place because of the life that my son you know has come out to us with and i do believe that we all have deep knowings you know this is not like a a commercial for untamed but it's true like i believe deeply that we know what feels right And what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And it just took me some time to figure out who I was and stop living through the eyes of my mom.
2: I think it takes all of us. Yeah. A long time. I mean, and actually, I think it's an untamed. She says a brilliant thing about like, and I'm going to mutilate this too, but it was so powerful for me to read about the day she kind of decided to stop being a daughter. Mm and broke that dynamic and was just a woman alongside her mother. And it just gives me chills to this day because <laughs> it's like the most practical advice and you can catch yourself being like, Oh, I'm back in the daughter thing. My mother's like bugging me cause she wants, you know, is asking me questions, but then you're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. If I unhook the, I am a daughter thing. It's we're fine. We're good. Totally. And it's like, we put all of this meaning
1: on these relationships or these like ideas of what these relationships should be or shouldn't be. And truly until I stepped into my own power and started living my own life for myself, you know, until I met Glennon, truly I think my mom has now seen how true and beautiful my life is and what I'd been fighting for all of those years and what I had been forging, right? like. Because when you're doing again it against the quote unquote acceptance or love of your family, you are you are in direct opposition, right? So then you have all these this tribal shaming that's coming into play. And once I found Glennon and now that my mom can see me in not just like a relationship but a relationship that is like so solid and beautiful and strong, she's like, okay, you got it you're good.
2: (laughs) And how amazing. And it's really powerful. And, you know, to change somebody's perspective, you know, in that way. Totally. And it's not easy, right?
1: Because our our moms and dads are, are very much stuck in their ways and their mindsets and whether it's religion or the way that they believe things should go or whatever. And it's interesting just talking about the sexuality thing with my mom, the very thing she was asking for, you know, the very thing I was asking of her accept me, believe me. She was saying the exact same thing to me, right? Accept me and my belief. And even though some of her beliefs are rooted in degrading human existence, which I don't believe in, I, have to, I had to separate myself from that and see it for us just wanting to connect, right? Like us just really wanting to be closer to each other and know each other. And that's just like what for me i hope for all mothers and daughters to see each other as like as they really are
2: and allow for that difference and as you say allow for the possibility that she is really coming from a place of wanting what is best for you and she truly believes that she's holding the correct beliefs and that you know so it does it comes from love so as a stepmother how does this inform i mean it's it's amazing to be a stepmother in a way because you are already a grown up by the time you are sort of being integrated with these kids that you know and probably can have take what you've learned to do and not do and mold your own kind of conscious philosophy around how you want to do it and you guys you know I feel like you're the model for stepmothers everywhere and I also think it's something that people don't really talk about you know mm-hmm. And so I would love to know how you've managed to do it and sort of what advice you have around, you know, building that kind of trust and and family.
1: Yeah, I think a couple things first, you know, I think the step parent, the, the mother, step father it gets a bad rap. So we from the beginning were like, we're going to change this and we're just going to call me bonus mom, bonus parent, whatever, because we truly wanted to do this differently. And it it started from the very beginning. So I have to also say in that my relationship with Glennon and her relationship with Craig is unique and different than than many marriages out there. So if this doesn't sound like your experience. This doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Okay. What it means is I'm just going to share my experience and hope that somebody can hear something that might change something in yours. So from the very beginning, when Glennon told Craig that we were in love and that that she wanted a divorce, Craig is the kind of human being that didn't operate through his ego, though he was upset and felt really sad about the family dynamic as he knew it was no longer going to stay intact. He also understood that sexuality and his marriage probably wasn't the best thing for him on a deep level. Right? So from the beginning, Craig and I, before we, before I was even ever introduced to the children, we were emailing before I even stepped foot in Naples, Florida, to be like a constant in Glennon's life before we even saw each other again. Craig and I were emailing and I let him express himself fully and I understood and I understand how hard the the situations that he was going through are. And what ended up happening is when, when Glennon and Craig ended up telling the kids that they were getting a divorce because she was in love with me, they operated out of complete truth, mm-hmm. right? And I think that we don't give our kids as much respect, to be completely truthful with them. And I think because of that, it allowed these children, first of all, no wavering. There wasn't like, what is happening? Why? They knew exactly what was happening. They knew exactly why. And then what Craig did was give me the best gift in the history of my life. And he said, I love Abby and you guys are going to love her too. And so he created an environment for me to step into not that i didn't have to work at it but glennon and craig raised these children to be non-judgmental and to accept people as they are and when glennon says i am in love with a woman i this is what's happening this was the family motto right like let's make this work we're going to be a beautiful modern family I mean, this morning we literally went and voted early and all three, Craig, myself, and Glennon went together. Like we're besties. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like I know it sounds ridiculous, but I'm also telling you it's possible. And I I think that in terms of stepping into being a parent, my God, I, I, I'm the youngest of seven. So I have, you know, to this day, I've got like 25 nieces and nephews. And parenting was something that I always wanted to do. I always thought before I met Glennon that I would have my own child or my own children. But here these three perfect human beings were. So I had to d- detach myself from like actual birthing a child a little bit, but I'm like, these people are perfect. Why would I Why would I roll the dice on messing this up? <laughs> you know, and, and Chase who's 17 right now and Tish who's 14 and Emma who's 12. They're all so cool and beautiful. And, you know, each one of them had a different, a different way in in terms of how they dealt with me stepping into their family dynamic. And we're all still evolving and growing. You know, Chase was a little bit older. So my relationship with him is a little bit different, but still so beautiful. And I do know that they trust me, which is ultimately the most important thing. I'm very proud of how Craig, myself, and Glennon respond to even, you know, the stressors of everyday life. It is also at times difficult to co-parent, but Craig and Glennon and myself are super committed to making the experience for these children the very best it can be. And I think that's what happens when parents lose sight of that. Like, what is these children's experience? And is my ego completely blowing it? So yeah, I got lucky. Craig's an amazing dude. And Glennon and him did an amazing job raising these kids to literally accept me walking into this house. Like it was perfect. So why would I go about messing it up? Never. I will never mess this up. And truly like whenever Craig does something that pisses Glennon off, I'm like always fighting Craig's battles. I'm like, but babe, Like, let's just take a breath here. Let's not jump off the bridge. We, we, he gave us, he gave me these children and that's the best gift he can ever give give a person.
2: So nice. That's great. And, you know, a real credit to him, you know, because that's, I don't know, that's a really big, like, that's a big bite to take out of life, right? To be able to, as a man, kind of, subjugate your ego to a new you know family structure and to be supportive mm-hmm. and-,
1: and not to mention he played college soccer he's actually a really good soccer player
2: oh. he
1: played at George Mason University and so you know the the whole family is now a huge soccer family and Glennon was like Now we're not really a soccer family. I'm like, well, that's going to change for sure. So he got he got a a a fan. Like now it's just always two v one against Glennon. We're like, we're gonna be watching soccer. So deal with it.
2: She clearly has a thing for soccer players. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly.
2: I'm really you know as as a person who has a company and a team, I feel like I learned a lot from your leadership tenets and. Mm I wanted to ask you a question, which was, you describe a moment in the book where every time you scored a goal, you pointed at all the people who got you there, basically, right? The person who assisted you, the person on the bench who was cheering you, the Gatorade person, whatever, like you always sort of explicitly showed the provenance of how you got somewhere and you shared the credit and which is so beautiful. And obviously like I'm in my mind, you're a winner in a whole other way. <laughs> However, you were the winner and you were the top scorer. And so I wonder like if you're a person who's going through life and it's not obvious that you're the winner, it's not obvious that you're the top scorer. Like you scored a goal. There's no bones about what happened, right? So you can amortize credit across the whole team. But if you're going through the world and you're trying to be a scorer or, you know, you haven't received accolades or you haven't been sort of pinpointed yet and you're on that path, I think it's more difficult to share credit, you know? So how do you advise, you know, somebody who is kind of going through, like, how do you cultivate that sort of spirit of no, I got here because of everybody around me. If you're not the clear winner.
1: Mm. Well, I think that if you were to break it down, I mean, to me, every single situation, whether it's on the sports field or not in business, like celebrations of wins is so important. And I can actually tell everything that I need to know about a team by the way they celebrate each other. Now, I get it. I get that there are people and I understand that I was definitely one of the best scorers on our team, but I was doing this before then. I was doing this when I wasn't, I was doing this as a kid. And I don't know if it's because I observed my brothers and sisters so much as a child and watched the way that they won and celebrated because by nature, being in a, in a team environment or being at work, right. There are other people around you and it is the goal of every manager or coach or captain or whatever to cultivate the very best team in the world. Okay. The very best team you possibly can. You know, I was doing this event with name drop, sorry, but Mia ham a couple of months ago and, and we were laughing about our time spent on the national team. And I started, to make fun of my own weakness of being big and, which was also a strength, but slow, right? I was never like the fastest player on the team. And she like reached over and she was like, Abby, don't do that. And I was like, kind of shocked. She like shut me up. I was like, why? And she goes, listen, when you start making fun of your weaknesses, what you're in indirectly doing is making fun of my strengths because where your weaknesses lied is where my strengths were able to kind of match up. So it is the goal, and it's so true, it's the goal of every manager or every boss to put together a team of people who are all different, but that they can create one common group, one kind of common heartbeat, so to speak, that will allow you to achieve the goals that you're after the attainables, whatever, whatever it is you want Goop to become, right? Your job as a leader is to cultivate the best people and they can't all be the same, right? So what that means is being in a team and having been in a team for so many years, seeing how a team functions, one person does not always get the glory. One person is never responsible for the whole. It is always a group effort. And, and based on who you're playing, based on, Based on the situation, it's very situational. Some players might step into a different um, strength or or against a certain team, one player might be even most successful, right? So we wanna put our energy into this into this person during this game. And the same thing goes in business. It's like, we get so focused on person who can sell the most, but who's helping that person? Is there an assistant that, to that salesperson Who is just so damn good at their job that is the the direct correlation to that that salesperson's success for me and and you know i think i get more street cred right having been the world's leading goal scorer and pointing to all of these people but it's a function of in some ways selfishness the only way i'm gonna keep scoring goals is if people keep passing me the ball right and the same works for every team in your life, your family dynamic, your business dynamic, like if you play actually on a rec league team, like you're never going to score a goal without the help of a teammate. Trust me, I know. I've done it more than anybody. I mean, one person, Christine Sinclair has passed me now. Yeah, no, she's great. I'm happy for her. But the reality is it is a, it is a mindset. Like it's a muscle that you can grow because as human beings, We are wired to gather as much as we possibly can for our own selves or our family, right? But the truth is, there is so much more that can come when you start letting people in and you start pointing to other people's success, especially because the machine that we've been operating in, this man's world, wants us to keep fighting against each other and not pointing towards
2: each other and helping
1: each other out along the way.
2: So how do you, your version of a team sounds, does sound a lot like a family. Yeah. So it's funny. There's a a book right now of a CEO of a big tech company. And he's saying that It's a detriment to an organization to have that family culture and that the competition of the team is, you know, what makes everybody kind of what makes the business continue to scale, et cetera. I don't know what my opinion is on that, but listening to you. (laughs) Well,
1: I mean, look, I think that he has a philosophy and he's going with it. Just because you're a family doesn't mean you don't want to compete. Just right. because well, you're
2: that was my point. That to me, you know, what underpins a family is this incredible, unconditional love you have for somebody like within the dynamic of that pod, and that you want the best for them and that you that their wins are your wins. And it seems like the way that you perceive team is more like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and that's just more enjoyable. Like, let's be real. Like, what kind of environment do you want to actually spend your time in? Like, I want to be in an environment, look, and this is not to say, and this is true, this is not to say I was best friends with every one of my teammates, but because we all could agree upon a common goal of winning and we were in line, we could be aligned to this one situation. I was able to deal with some personality differences more than I've ever been able to deal with it.
2: You know, you might have that with your brother in a family or your, totally. so it's really more like how, where, what is the quality of your heart as you're going into something like that?
1: Yeah, and I'm just kind of a firm believer in in order to get the best out of people, hundred percent they need to feel safe, hundred percent okay. they need to feel safe and respected. And if you always are like at the edge, and or, or like you're your your heart is like, oh, or you you think I've got to go to work tomorrow and like your stomach drops a little. Like that isn't cultivating goodness long term, right? That's cultivating salespeople who will be here for a couple of years, probably do really well for your company and then they will move on. And I've had the pleasure of working with lots of amazing companies as sponsors throughout my life because as a female athlete, that's the only way I could survive. And now it's actually the only literal way I survive sponsors and being a professional speaker. And those companies that felt like family to me, those companies that showed me who they were beyond like numbers and sales and who just showed me their human side are the companies that I, I lasted with for 15 years. <laughs> you know, cause I'm not after the, the last dollar, right? Like I am willing actually to give up a dollar to secure my safety and joy
2: that famous commercial that (laughs) you all did about that. You wanted people to forget you when you retired in service of like letting your contribution to the sport live in all of what we've just been talking about, like the teamwork, the, the mentality, the, you know, being like the guru from the bench, like all of the (laughs) things contributed to the game and all of the ways in which you showed other players what the game could be that you wanted to be forgotten and let who you were as a player and those values speak for your time in the sport and how did it's such a beautiful Mm. it's an amazing amazing commercial and sentiment how did that was that your idea? I mean, I can't imagine a brand coming to you and be like, we have this great idea that you want to forget yourself. <laughs> like, how Believe
1: make- this or not, my agent who has been a long time, he's been my agent since 04, he said that Gatorade wanted to show me something. And I was like, all right. So he kind of like conned me into flying to Chicago, going to the Gatorade offices. And we sat down and had a meeting. And they brought out all of these storyboards for this possible commercial that they wanted to shoot as a retirement commercial that would play on the day that I was retiring from soccer. And I sat there and read through the storyboards and I sobbed, I sobbed, oh my God, Gwyneth. It's like, it's kind of embarrassing to think about how touched I was because You know, I started working with them in 04 and this is in 2015. This is a relationship that lasted for, for over a decade and for a company to really get me like that and then put it to paper and then want to spend a ton of money on creating a commercial and to become an athlete that had a Gatorade, like a solo Gatorade commercial was something that I felt really proud about. I don't know why that's just ego talking.
2: No, that's a, that's a real moment.
1: Yeah. And I don't know. I just felt like, gosh, this is, this could be such a cool statement. And the truth is I was terrified about retiring. I was so nervous about retiring and I knew there's a part of my psyche that, like I said earlier, like that response mechanism, I have learned how to like shut that down and to like do the right thing, say the right thing, because I know that deep down, I have like goodness in me that that's real and true. And this experience was like the probably the most humbling experience of my career, because essentially I'm just saying like, yeah, like I don't want you to remember me because when you don't remember me, that means that our game has grown. That means my time was well spent. And like I said, like that's just playing the long game, right? That's playing the long game. And I think about all of the women that came before me, that gave me an opportunity, the Billie Jean Kings, the Jackie Joyner-Kerseys, like Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy, specifically in soccer, how they literally changed the landscape for how people are view women in athletics. And there are so many women in the world that people will never know their name. And they had, whether they laid a pebble or a, a, a paver or or like real solid ground, right? I mean, Title IX, Title IX was passed. That has been like the most beautiful bonus thing for women's sports ever. Title IX was really passed because women wanted to go to law school and medical school. And so this was a way for women to get equal opportunity to do law and to do med school, Right. And because of that, it gave all of this opportunity to any federally funded institution that if you gave a scholarship to a male athlete, you had to give it to a female athlete. And so what we see is this beautiful byproduct 15, 20 years later of these women who have single-handedly been directly influenced by other women that you'll never know. I mean, Bunny is one of the women who created Title IX, who did all the work, and nobody knows her name. Nobody knows her name. So for me, yeah, I we're, we're never going to forget certain people for sure. But I don't believe that I'm going to hold on too long to my soccer career as an identity or my ego for that chance. I'd rather that than people remember me.
2: Amazing. Out of these eight extremely important pillars, which one resonates the most with you. Yeah. Create your own path. Be grateful for what you have and demand what you deserve. Lead now from wherever you are. Failure means you're finally in the game. Be for each other. Believe in yourself. Demand the ball. Lead with your full self. Cultivate leaders. You're not alone. You've got your pack.
1: I think that you're not alone. You've got your pack is one of the most important things. One of the biggest lessons I ever learned in my life. And right now, you know, this new young readers edition of Wolfpack is out. And, you know, for me, there is probably no more important time in the history of humanity to be handing our children books or resources in leadership that are based in honor, you know. I got all of this from my time spent on our women's national team. And ironically, I had no idea that this would happen in my life, but writing this book has changed my life. I have become this public speaker in the business world. Like the business world is like dying to know some of this stuff for women. Right. And I'm like, also for men, by But the most amazing thing that's happened recently, and I'm wearing the shirt ironically right now, but the NWSL, which is the professional women's soccer team league in, in our country, Angel City FC, which is the new women's professional team in Los Angeles, has come to me in this most profound, beautiful way. You know, Natalie Portman, she ended up watching me on stage talking about inequality Inequality between men and women's sports at a Times Up Connect event. This is a couple years ago. And then fast forward a year and a half after that talk, she decided that she was going to do something about it and collected some of her friends in Hollywood, collected former women's national team players. And one day I looked at my DMs on IG and Natalie Portman (laughs) DM'd me. She's like, Can I call you tomorrow? I'm like, Yes, Natalie Portman, I guess. <laughs> this is weird. She heard what I said and wanted to make wanted to make a difference and change the reality of professional sports being only for white men, right? Billionaires, white men. So she asked me if I wanted to also join the ownership group and I before she could finish her sentence I said yes, right? And so this book has led me into the direction of I didn't even know that this was a dream of mine. I mean, it it is always like a dream of all athletes like to like continue on and to be a part of that sport that gave you so much forever. But most of us don't have access to the kind of funding or people that would continue that, that access. And the concepts of Wolfpack and the things that I talk about and things that I believe literally walked me into a dream of mine. And I'm doing it with other women who are badass and amazing and successful in their own way. And we're just gonna create this club using no rules from the oppressor. And we are gonna rewrite this rule book and give more space to other women and hopefully create a a model for other people
2: to follow. So amazing. I can't wait. Thank you so much. Honestly, this has been so great. You are such a freaking inspiration. Thank you for listening to my
0: chat with Abby Wambach. Go to wolfpacknextgen.com to purchase the Young Readers edition of Abby's book, Wolfpack. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already.
2: Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.